0: A very warm welcome to you. My name's Emma Wall and I'm a member of the wonderful church family here at Ebbie. Today I'm giving the next talk in our series in Mark, one of the four Gospels in the New Testament, which all detail the life and work of Jesus. The title that I've been given is The Coming Unexpected King. And when I began my prep back in January, there was already much talk of Operation Golden Orb, the forthcoming coronation of King Charles III, which is a day under eight weeks away now. In amongst discussions of concerts and catering, crowns and street parties, there has also been a lot of talk about who will or won't make it onto the balcony. Who does or doesn't deserve the title of royalty. It's something that people often seem to have quite a lot of opinions about. Every time I get into my I-10, the first thing that I do after switching the engine on, even before I put on my seatbelt, is I hit the button for my car radio and out blasts Premier Praise. This particular day, I'd not long started my planning for this morning when a regular presenter, Celine C. Jordan, came onto the airwaves and said that she'd been to meet King Charles the day before and that she'd tell us all about it after she played the next song. I'm someone who's quite often on a tight schedule when I'm visiting people, and I sadly reached my destination before the song had finished. So I never got to hear why Celine had met the King how she felt about it, whether she'd managed to keep up with the etiquette or whether she felt like she messed up, what he seemed like in person. That radio moment has determined how I've organised and planned my talk this morning. Today, we will be looking at how people 2,000-plus years ago responded to the opportunity of coming out to greet the coming king – And this morning, I want each of us to think how we react today to King Jesus who still and always comes to us. I will begin by reading today's passage from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, which has the title in my NIV, The Triumphal Entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, tell them the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. I've grouped my thoughts into sections based around five categories of people who I think could have been there in that cheering tumultuous crowd. My hope and prayer is that every one of you can imagine yourself somewhere amidst the throng that I describe that you find someone who you can relate to. I'll begin by saying that the sense of crowd is very noticeable and a big part of these verses that we've read in Mark 11. But we must remember that any crowd is always, always, always made up of individuals. I believe that you are seen by the coming king as a unique individual who you are, and I believe that you are loved by him as that unique individual. I don't know if you would have put yourself at the back of this particular crowd or if you would have been like others, looking expectantly up, waiting in eager anticipation. But I do know that there are lots of reasons in life why we keep our heads down, why we don't feel worthy enough, deserving enough, to be noticed or seen. In hope shouts louder, Rosie Godfrey writes, although I was content to be myself, from early on I assumed assumed others mattered more than I did. Later on in the book she writes, I have plenty of thought patterns that Jesus has been working on but one that stands out to me is the belief that I'm not enough. It has been with me most of my life and has kept me viewing myself as small and insignificant and generally unworthy. I think that that's a struggle that quite a few people can often have. Back in November, I had the privilege of speaking at a women's conference in Torquay with my mum, and on the Friday evening at the end of my talk about mums, I said that I wanted to play an amazing song from Lauren Daigle's fittingly titled album, Look Up Child. And I'd like to take the chance to read the lyrics from it now, as I don't know whose voices, now or from your past, speak loudly into your life or what they say. But this morning, I would like you to feel that you hear what the unexpected king says about you. And I'd like you to be able to look easily and expectantly up. Lauren Daigle, you say... I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am, because I need to know. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. You say, I am held, when I am falling short. When I don't belong, you say, I am yours. And I believe. I believe what you say of me. I believe. The only thing that matters now is everything you think of me. In you, I find my worth. In you, I find my identity. Taking all I have, and now I'm laying it at your feet. You have every failure, God and you'll have every victory. Oh, I believe. Yes, I believe what you say of me. Oh, I believe. We are surrounded by so many competing voices and influences, some of them unhelpful. In The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer writes, the noise of the modern world makes us deaf to the voice of God, drowning out the one input we most need. And as Lauren Daigle so perceptively suggests, it's also the voices in our own heads saying that we're not enough, that we'll never measure up, that we have to regularly contend with. What does Jesus say of you today? That's not what you say about you. You know that inside out, back to front and every which way. In his fantastic book, Bouncing Forward, Patrick Regan writes, what brings my resilience levels low is listening to my inner critic. This morning, put your inner critic aside, look up, and hear what the coming unexpected king says of you today. Another major benefit of looking up is that we notice and appreciate what is there right in front of us. In hope shouts louder, Rosie Godfrey aptly writes, if we have our eyes fixed on what we don't have, we fail to see what we do have. And in the same book, Rebecca Towney goes on to write, is thankfulness old fashioned? Have we grown too sophisticated to be thankful? Are we simply too comfortable and feel we don't need to remind ourselves of what we have in the face of what we lack? When I read those quotes, the person who came immediately into my mind was my Johnny boy, who is someone who has consciously chosen to look up in his life. When his mum died of cancer when he was in his first year of secondary school, aged 12, and for other reasons too, he could have raped over and over all of the things that he didn't have, the things that were missing in his life. Instead, he chose to make the most of the things that he did have. He loved that his remaining family gave him their best, and their best was always good enough for him. It drew me to him right from the start that he is someone who chooses to look up, someone who chooses to live positively. He isn't someone who wallows or who uses excuses. I so love that about him. It might be that people need some help to look up. I think that Mother Teresa got it spot on when she said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. A few months ago, I was waiting for a friend to arrive in a coffee shop on Gloucester Road, knowing that she might be running late, because before meeting up with me, she was taking her close friend to hospital for her latest round of treatment. A few minutes later she blew in through the cafe doors and we were quickly deep into conversation over our Americanos when she explained how her friend without a faith was living life as a chicken rather than as an eagle. What she meant was that her eyes were down and she was just scratching around over and over again in the dirt of her present situation. She couldn't see or think about anything other than her challenging medical issues. She wasn't able to gain a different perspective or look at her situation from an angle composed of hope. Isn't that so often true of the obstacles in life that consume us? We just can't see past them." And I said to my friend that every time she texted a message through or phoned or arranged to take her to the next treatment, she was gently lifting her chin. To begin with, it might quickly drop back down to scrutinise the dirt of her distressing circumstances, but gradually, over time, her head might stay up for a bit longer. Letting our chins be lifted doesn't mean that everything is okay in the mess at our feet. Letting our chins be lifted doesn't mean that it might not all still be there when we look back down but it's incredible what a view of Jesus does to our tired, hurting perspective. It's mind-blowing what a change it brings when we hear what he says of us. In a chapter in Bouncing Forwards, Liz Carter writes, we felt God's encouragement to take off our masks, to put away any sense of a pretend, shiny gospel that says that everything is okay. Fake faith brings no peace or contentment, but faith that wrestles with God in the darkness brings sustenance to our souls in the hard times. We have learnt to be vulnerable with others, sharing our pain, our questions, our disappointment. And we are grateful for those who haven't tried to cover everything over with a pat answer. I say today, let us be those friends who gently lift the chins of those in the crowd who need to look up. I'd like to finish this section with part of the poem, The Hill We Climb, written and performed by Amanda Gorman on Wednesday, the 21st of January, 2021, at Joe Biden's inauguration. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. The new day blooms as we free it, For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Be a lifter of chins, be light in people's darkness. The next category of people who I want to think about are those in the crowd who were disappointed with this unexpected king who arrived amongst them. In Matthew 21, verse 5, it reads, "'See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey.'" What about those people who wanted a very different kind of king from the one who chopped, clopped into Jerusalem that day? Are we ever those kind of people? And it made me think of an incredible verse that my mum introduced me to a few months ago. It's a verse in Job 12 in the Old Testament where Job says to his three friends who have come to sympathise with and comfort him that there are those who carry their God in their hands. Were there people then, as there undoubtedly are now, who actually wanted a king who would fit into their hands, a king who would do their bidding, who would be easily swayed towards their cause? towards their spin, towards what they wanted in life. A king who they could mould and manipulate. I want to say to you today, don't ever underestimate our king who comes to us gentle, yes, and riding on a simple donkey. For that crowded, noisy road that Jesus made his way along, lined with exuberant palm wavers and strewn cloaks was the same road that merely days later led to a cross on which Jesus made a way for us, all of us, to cross from death to eternal life. There was a strength in him that I don't think we can ever truly comprehend. What fortitude, what courage, what torment, what love it must have cost him to conquer our sin. Our king is not small. Believe you me, he will never fit in anyone's hands. His own hands were nailed open to set us free. Something done once. Something done for all time. Something that will never be done again. Because, quite simply, it doesn't need to be. I'll begin my penultimate section by posing a couple of questions. What influences you? What can you be persuaded to do or not to do? I wonder how easy it could have been in this Jerusalem street scene to be carried along by everyone else's exuberance. I wonder how easy people could have felt left out if they hadn't chosen to have been part of it. Because this is what I find so hard to understand concerning this scene, how quickly everything changed. Four chapters on from this one in Mark, not only are the palm branches ditched and the strewn cloaks reunited with their owners, but when Jesus is stood before the same crowd and Pilate asks whether they want Barabbas freed or Jesus, they begin shouting with regard to Jesus over and over again, crucify him, crucify him. By the end of the chapter, Jesus... Is dead. How did the hosannas of Mark 11 turn so quickly into death threats? Matthew 27, verse 20 reads The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. To manipulate crowds, people need to get to individuals within the crowd. How easy is it to manipulate, to cajole, to persuade individuals within crowds? I still struggle to get my head around the notion that there is a paid occupation, and apparently a very lucrative one, of being an influencer. That's a job nowadays. People are paid to influence and persuade other people. To persuade people to what? to get sucked in to spend money on the latest trends, gadgets, lifestyles, to persuade people to waste their time indulging in celebrity gossip, to persuade people to change, improve, enhance their appearance, to persuade people not to accept who they are. The possibilities go on and on. How easily in today's modern society are you and I persuaded, cajoled, encouraged? to put our palm branches down? What causes us to cease cheering? What brings an end to our hosannas? Are we exuberantly waving when things are going to plan for us? What about when they're not? Is our faith merely a barometer faith that takes readings of our atmosphere and the temperature of our circumstances? How do we make ours a resilient faith? A yet kind of faith? A despite kind of faith? I can't leave this section without mentioning something that I feel so passionately about. Imagine now your 14-year-old self sat back in a secondary school classroom and tried to remember what you were studying at the time. Maybe the mountain ranges of Europe, maybe the periodic table, maybe algebraic equations. Back in January on the one o'clock news, I find myself watching a lesson going on in a Belfast classroom of 14-year-olds, where the teacher was carrying out a lesson, trying to undo, or at least loosen, the toxic impact on young people of a social media influencer who is currently in custody in Romania on criminal charges. I did further research on the internet and I found out that schools up and down the country are now having to teach lessons to try and combat his uh, misogynistic views. A school in West London held a whole school assembly where it banned two words from being spoken on its premises, his name. An article on the 6th of February stated that courses for teachers on how to tackle his views have sold out. Coupled with this, the determined campaigning of Ian Russell, whose 14-year-old daughter Molly died from an act of self-harm, and how he has tirelessly detailed how social media firms are monetising misery. Imagine monetising misery. This is a very different world from the one that you and I lived in as teenagers. And it's become a very dangerous world for our young people. It is heartbreaking to me to see the world's toxic lies that our young people are marinating in marinating in. Back in February, towards the end of our service, James Creed came up spontaneously to the front and spoke so movingly about the immense, almost unbearable pressure being exerted on our young people. And he implored us, each of us, to stand alongside them, to be positive role models and influences in their lives and never to underestimate the reach of what we can bring to them. I stand shoulder to shoulder with James this morning in regard to those comments. And I ask the question, how are we growing a resilient faith in our children? How are we as church family, how are you as an individual, if you're a member of this community, putting palm branches into the hands of our young people? How are we putting palm branches into the hands of our children, our nephews, our nieces, our godchildren, our grandchildren? And how are we inspiring and encouraging them not to put those same branches down when influencers suggest that they do, or when life doesn't turn out as they hoped that it would? In closing, I want to think about those in the crowd who chose not to pick up palm branches in the first place. Is that you? Maybe you feel as if you haven't got a lot to celebrate right now. Maybe the last place that you want to be is slap bang in the middle of a happy throng. Maybe you're disappointed with life. Maybe you're disappointed with God. Maybe your life hasn't turned out how you hoped it would. Maybe you've not ended up in the environment that you hoped you'd be in. Maybe you're waiting for tomorrow to be better, to be brighter than you might think about it. In his book *Bouncing Forward*, Patrick Regan writes an incredible response to the letter that the prophet Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem to the people living in exile. When he writes, "God told them not to expect things to change quickly, but to make the best of the circumstances they were in. He told them not to put their life on hold, waiting for when they were free." This wasn't a time to hunker down and lick their wounds. He didn't want them to be inward-looking, gritting their teeth to get through. God wanted his people to be generous and kind. He wanted them to reach out and help others. In short, he told them to live. He was saying, don't wait until you leave Babylon. Live now. Make the most of where you are and what you have, even though it's not what you would have chosen. I know people who live their life looking inward, with their teeth gritted, and I'm sure that you do too, and it isn't pretty. But I am also blessed to know people who are warm, generous, and kind, despite the circumstances that they find themselves in, despite them not being what they would have chosen for themselves. It is a choice that each one of us has to make, Let us choose to be those second kind of people. Patrick Regan goes on to write these poignant words. How often do we make the mistake of not living in the moment? We wait for the healing, the answer to the prayer, the fulfilment of our dreams. We refuse to plant a garden where we are, longing for a better garden in the future. We long for the promised land, and we forget that God is at work even in the desert. An African proverb that I so love says, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Maybe you're someone who feels like you missed the opportunity to raise the palm branches or the chance to plant a garden because you didn't like your surroundings, because you didn't want it to look like you were staying, settling, because you didn't like the way that things have turned out because of your mistakes, because of what your life has seemed to amount to, because you thought that things would be better around the next corner. If you didn't plant a garden because you've always been waiting to see what tomorrow brings, I say to you, this morning plant a garden today let us pray jesus our king thank you for coming to us where we are over all of the other competing voices surrounding us in our life help us to hear yours loud and clear May we more and more look up towards you and when we feel unable to, place those in our life who will lift our chins and shine light into our darkness. Help us to be thankful for what we have and where we are rather than constantly ruminating about what we haven't got and where we'd like to be instead. Grow in us a resilient faith a yet kind of faith, a despite kind of faith. Empower us to put palm branches into the hands of our young people and give us the courage to plant a garden today. Amen.